We are going to uh, continue on the, the uh, series that started a couple weeks ago, the story of the romance. And uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about Matthew 22 2 as the reset button to our Christianity. And, uh, and so we're going to just continue along those lines. Let's look at this verse in Matthew 22 2. Here's Jesus. So in the last week of his life, he's teaching, he's, he's laying out some of the most profound and powerful teachings in the scripture. And, and there at the end, he focuses on two primary issues. He, he focuses on intimacy and he focuses on end times right there in the last so, uh, several chapters there in the book of Matthew. And so here it is in Matthew 22, 2, he lays out this parable and he says in verse 2, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And this is the story of all creation. It's, very, it's a very simple storyline. The father has a son. The desire of the son is to have a bride. And the father is working 7,000 years of of created history unto this. Its culmination will be this, that the promise that he's given to his son, that that he will have a bride, he's working 7,000 years of created history in order to bring that promise to pass. The father is arranging a marriage for his son. And that is the story of all creation. And beloved, that's the story of our lives. The journey of all creation God is working over this 7,000-year period to, to bring forth a bride who's comparable as a partner forever for his son. That story is also our story individually. What he's doing over the, the course of creation, he's doing in a, in a micro kind of way in each of our lives. He's bringing us through uh, many different challenges and trials, through, through times of blessing and, and bliss and pleasure and, and times of, of lows and difficulties. He's bringing us through this unique journey unto this, making us a comparable partner for the man Christ Jesus. God is causing us to be comparable, in other words, be a, a worthy partner for his son. Think about the stunning dignity that God assigns to humanity in this point. We who are broken, we are dust, we are given to sin, and we, we prefer darkness over light. <laughs> That's the state of humanity. We prefer darkness over light, we are broken, we are dust, and yet God is working the entirety of our lives. And what I mean by that is this, all the different ups and downs of your journey, your path is unique. It's unique to you, it's different than mine, it's different than the person sitting next to you, but it's specific from the hand of God and it's for a reason, he's trying to bring you into maturity and love equaling this, that you'd be a comparable partner for the man Christ Jesus. Consider the dignity God's assigning to you. I think about that. I think about my state. I think about who I am and was without Jesus. And then the idea of this, that God's working 
all the activity of my life under one end, I'm going to be joined with Jesus forever in intimacy and love and perfection, and that is why I'm breathing. <laughs> I'm breathing air because God loved me. I, I'm, I'm experiencing life now unto this end that God desired me, that the Son, Jesus, wants to be united with me forever, and the, all the trials and activities of my life, all the ups and all the downs, my responses, when I blow it, when I repent, when I change, when, when, it, when it goes well, when I experience blessing, when I experience highs and lows, all of that journey is unto this point. The Father is arranging a wedding for his son, and somehow, <laughs> I'm getting in on it. You're getting in on it by saying yes to that invitation. This is unthinkable. It's, I mean, it's amazing, but it's your story. It is your story. I remember several years ago when I began to reassess the activity of my life through the lens of this verse, that all the activity of my life is unto this end, that God is bringing me to maturity to make me a comparable partner for his son. When I began to think of the storyline of my life, the journey of my life in light of that truth, everything shifted a bit. All of a sudden, I began to see the hand of God working in me. You know, the, the, the book of Song of Solomon, it says, his, his left hand is behind me and his right hand embraces me. His left hand is behind me it's the left-handed activities of God. God does things that we cannot see. He's, he's gently directing us with his left hand. And the right hand of God is the power encounters where we clearly see God moving in our life. And all of a sudden, I begin to see this, that the entirety of my life is God's left-handed activities that I don't get to see, God's powerful right-handed activities that I do get to see. And all of it is culminating in this. He is bringing me to a, uh, I am living on a collision course. To this reality, I'm going to, I'm going to be joined with divinity forever. I'm going to be joined with the one who is divine and perfect forever. Why? Because he loves me. <laughs> this is why I get to live? It changed everything. So then the negative things, I interpret them as uh, opportunities to strengthen, challenges to, to help mold my character. For instance, if I, uh, you know, I know no one, none of you have a challenge with being um, maybe short-tempered or, or getting perturbed, but, but if I find myself getting frustrated quickly, then there's a, that's a, 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 a sign to me that God is working on me my problem isn't that which is frustrating me. My problem is my heart isn't being conformed to the image of Christ yet. It's on its way, but it hasn't been conformed yet. And this opportunity, this pro you know, we go, well, that person or that situation, da, 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 da. No, no, God is authoring those things. Why? To help me to choose love. To help me to choose patience. 
help me to choose kindness. When I see those shortcomings in my life, rather than pointing at someone else as the problem, what I can do is see them through this lens that God is arranging a marriage for his son and what he's doing is he's arranging the circumstances to cause all the impurities to bubble to the surface and sometimes they manifest in ugly ways and then get rid of those impurities. Why? So I can be a comparable partner for Jesus. It changes everything. Sometimes the trials are harder because the stuff is buried deeper. Sometimes we take the same test over and over and over because we keep answering it wrong. What's going on? You ever feel like that in life? You're just like in a continual deja vu, like, didn't I just do this last week? And You ever spent like a whole year rounding the same mountain over and over and over? What's going on? It's the mercy of God to you. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is about a good king. And he's trying to fulfill the desire of his son's heart. And he's arranging a marriage and he's drawing forth a comparable bride for his son Jesus Christ. And he's taking people like you and I who are broken and we're dust and we are given to sin and we like darkness more than light. And he is causing all the activity of our life to shape and form our hearts unto this that we could be a comparable partner to Jesus. Beloved, this is our story. This is your story. It's my story. When I wake up in the morning, this is the journey that we're on. And, and I think this, I think one of the most powerful, sustaining features of Christianity, what causes my heart to sustain, to be sustained in passion and to be sustained in focus, what causes my heart to be sustained is this truth that I am on a journey What I am uh, today doesn't define me. What I was yesterday doesn't define me. And what I do tomorrow, that doesn't define me. What defines me is the journey that I'm on. I am on a journey to a marriage. I'm on a journey to be united with God. And the fact that I can see my life over a storyline, I can see it on the journey. Because what happens is this, I go back and I look at who I was 10 years ago and I go, wait a minute, the journey's working. The, the ups and downs, the things that God's putting in my life, the, the, the trials, the challenges, the blessings, all the ingredients that he's mixing together, it's working. And I go back 20 years and I go, man, you know, as an 18-year-old young guy just getting saved, I had all these thoughts. And man, 20 years later, I can see a progression. Now, it might be four or five, you know, just a few steps forward. But you know what? Those four or five matter. And when I interpret my life in light of a storyline and I see this journey, it changes how I approach every single day. It changes my view of the way that I I think about myself. And it lets me interpret God's activity in my life in a completely different way. I was thinking about our crowd and our community and I was thinking, you know, some of us, we are 60 years down the road on our journey. Some of us are 40 years down the road on our journey. Some of us are 20 years down the road. But you know, that that, that 60-year-old or that 80-year-old, you're on a place in your journey. I mean, I just think you're going to see Jesus soon. (laughs) That's a powerful, powerful truth. 
And you've learned things that I don't have a clue about yet. Those are ingredients that God's put in your heart, in your life, seasoned you. He's, he's seasoned you to perfection. Your journey is not my journey, but your journey is unique to you because why? God has been arranging a marriage for his son. And it's, it's different for each of us, but we're each on this journey. There's a journey of all creation. It's 7,000 years. And there's a journey of each individual life, each individual creation, 78, 80 years. And God works through all of it because Matthew 22 is true. He's arranging a marriage for his son. To think about the dignity that he signs to me who's broken and weak and immature and prone to stumble and he is assigning the dignity of making me comparable to his son and, and I'm going to marry Jesus and be united with him forever. That is unthinkable. He takes the most lowly and exalts us to the highest place to sit together with his throne. Beloved, this is our story. It's your story. It's what your life has been about regardless of, regardless of whether or not you realize it or not. It's what your life has been about whether or not you realize it. You're, you've been on a journey to meet perfection. And the whole scripture, all of the scripture is about this point. From Genesis to Revelation. He starts the story in a garden. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And he starts that story in, in this place of perfection. Why? Because he's telling us what it's all going to be about. In the very beginning, he gives us a man and a woman in the most beautiful place. And he's why? He's giving us a, a pointer to tell us what the whole journey is going to be about. It's going to be about a romance. Between God and man. In Ephesians 5, he tells us this. He goes, uh, he's going to leave. A man will leave his, his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one. He goes, but I don't speak about a man and a woman. I speak regarding Christ and the church. He tells us in Ephesians 5 that the story of Genesis 1 and 2 is about our journey. And so he starts it in a garden. And then he's going to take it to another garden in the book of Revelation. It's not the Garden of Eden. It's Zion. The new Jerusalem. He starts the story in a garden and he ends it up in a garden in the new Jerusalem. And, and it's interesting because the, the, uh, the angel in the book of Revelation, there at the end, he says, come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And, and, and you think, okay, I'm going to see a multitude of people. And he begins to show us a city. And I probably get that question more than any, I mean, just almost every time we have an internship, it's not more than any, but I get it as often as any. They say, how come when he says he's going to show the, the, uh, the apostle John, the, the wife of the lamb, how come he shows him the city? Where's the people? And I go, well, what is a city without people? Nothing. <laughs> and what's he doing? He's showing us what we're made for. He's showing us what we're really made for. We're made for a place where the fruit, the trees bear fruit every, every single month. And we're made for a place where the water is alive. And we're made for a place where it doesn't have any need of sun or moon because the lamb is its light. And the glory of the Lord permeates the atmosphere and the very air we breathe is the glory of God. We're made for a place of stunning beauty, a city with 12 gates with 12 angels at each gate and each gate is a pearl. We're made for a place that has streets of gold that the gold is clear. 
We're made for a place of perfection in life and glory and beauty. I love that verse Jesus says. He goes, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. He goes, but I go and I prepare a place for you. And, and he's talking about the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is the Father's house, this gigantic city that's full of the light and the glory of God, that the, the, the river flows with life, the life of God, and the trees are invigorated with life, and they're bearing fruit in every single month. And there's mansions in that city that Jesus is building for us. And why does he show them the city? Because he wants us to understand that this is what we're made for. We're made for pleasure and beauty and interfacing with God and the story starts in a garden and the story ends in a garden and this is where we're going. The story, it starts in a garden to tell us where we're headed and the story ends in a garden to let us know where we're going. Because the kingdom of heaven is it's about a king who arranged a marriage for his son. This is our story, beloved. I love it. I love what the writer of Hebrews said. Chapter 13, I'll just read it to you to come up on your screen. It says, let us go forth to him. Talking about Jesus who suffered outside the camp. Let us go forth to him. It's almost like a marriage procession, the picture. Suffering servant with the bride coming forth. Outside the camp. Bearing the reproach of Christ. Bearing his reproach. This is our journey in this life. Verse 14, for here we have no continuing city but we seek the one to come. My wife was reading that this week. She goes, this seems like a theme scripture for all of Christianity. We don't put any anchors down in this life thinking that we've got any kind of place here. We realize that the entirety of our life is about the city to come. And the point is that you get to inherit a city, though the city is gonna be like ultra cool. The point is that you're gonna be married to the one who's perfect. He's prepared a place for his bride to live forever in perfection. We don't look for a city here. We don't look for the pleasures here. We don't look for everything that's gonna, you know, quote unquote, satisfy us here. Why? Because we realize there is a city to come. We've got a greater destiny. I've got a greater future than whatever I get done in this 70 or 80 years. This is a gift, but beloved, it's an internship and it's unto something way more real than this life that I'm living. I am on a collision course with a marriage to the Son of God. This is our reset button. We can get so distracted through all the trials, not interpreting them rightly. Through the challenges of this life, we can get so head down thinking, what does it all mean? And I tell you what it means. You are on a journey to that place, to a city whose builder and maker is God. He's got you in process. You're not what you were, and you're not yet what you're going to be. You're in process. You know what's amazing about that? He loves the guy that's in process. Oh, that's helpful. Thank God he doesn't like start the, the clock ticking on loving us like after we're glorified. Like, thank God he's not, you know, ooh, you guys are, whoa. Y'all are a little rough down there. I'm not sure if I can love you that way. He goes, no, I love the one that's in process. 
Because I died for the one that's on the journey. I died because of love for the broken. Guys, this isn't their story. It's your story. It's my story. I, you know, I say this often, but when I get out of bed in the morning, I don't get out of bed because of, you know, some human zeal that's pushing me forward to be great. I got out of bed for one reason in the morning. He loves me. There's not a goal on this side of eternity that can get me out of bed. There's not a goal on this side, I promise you. All my human zeal will end me up in an ash heap broken and bruised. The goal is this, I am going to find, I'm going to meet love face to face. I get out of bed every morning because God loves me. There's not, there's not a something that, that excels that. <laughs> That's the point. I love how Paul said, he goes, I am what I am by the grace of God and his grace working in me. That's the whole point. It's God drawing me. God carrying me by grace to an appointment I've got. You know, my appointment might be about 40 years out, but I'm looking forward to it. That's why I breathe. Intimacy with Jesus forever. It's your story. It's my story. This is our story. We call these ups and downs, we call it the romance. We call it the romance of the gospel. If he's arranging a, a, a wedding, then there's a romance on the way. And, and, and all the men, don't check out when I say that. Because the romance isn't about candies and flowers, you know, and a big kiss from Jesus to you. That's not the romance. The romance is about the unique ingredients that God puts in your life. The highs and the lows. It's what I've, this story, this journey that I've been describing the romance is about the amazing moves of God that, that draw your heart into intimacy and then the times of challenge that you traverse that produces a root and strength in your legs to stand. The romance is about the ups and the mountaintops and the downs and the valleys. The romance is about the journey of this life unto this. We're going to be united with Christ. Fully. Completely. I love that the, the, the fact that I'm on a journey, that sustains my heart. It enables me to, to get up in the morning and say, you love me, and that's why I'm where I'm at, and you're not gonna leave me here, you're gonna take me on to perfection. That's the story of the, of the gospel. That's the story of the romance. That's what we're doing. We're all on this journey. It's a pathway of challenge and wonder and blessing, it's all the ingredients that we experience is making us comparable partners with his son, Jesus, forever. There's two uh, keys that I want to just highlight this morning that will keep our hearts alive in the journey, keep our hearts alive in the romance. Find with me uh, Psalm 149. These aren't the only keys. There's way more keys I like sometimes to say, would you rather have keys or steps or points, whatever. These are a few bullets. A couple thoughts. They're things that I like to use that keeps my heart alive. It helps me stay buoyant in my heart 
reset in this concept of the, of the romance of the gospel. I find that the more that I'm aware of the romance, the more that I'm aware that I'm on this journey to a wedding, the, mo- the more my heart is able to sustain the challenges that this life offers me. That's what I'm trying to communicate in this first point here, this first part of the message. But these keys, I just gave t- I'm just giving you two things that help me. The first one is this. Become a student of the emotions of God. A student of the emotions of God. That sounds a little bit ethereal, but it's simply this. Whenever you see the scriptures that talk about the way God feels, God delights, God takes pleasure, uh, God is glad or joyful, God is pleased. Anytime you see words like that, note them and, and, and put them, commit them to study and to meditation. Wherever you see scriptures that identify emotions that God has. I love the ones that talk about his heart yearns, his heart churns. I love that. What you do is you get any of those scriptures that describes the movements of God's heart and and you commit them to a study, to, to meditating and to consideration. You become a student of understanding the way God thinks and feels. Here's why this is so important as a key to keep our hearts alive. Because most of the time, we have an image of God, and, and it's, it's one of two things usually. It's either that God is emotionless, and we see him as stoic and detached. I know that's one of the lies that the enemy tells people all the time, that God is disinterested, he's unattached, he's not interested in you, and he basically doesn't feel anything. You're going through this challenge, and God doesn't care. And so people can, they tend to feel like they're going through some deal on their own, not realizing that God is right there with them in the deal, feeling the very things they're feeling, because God is emotional. But they see God as stoic and unattached and disinterested in their plight, and therefore they, they feel uh, that God is withdrawn and, and, and standoffish toward them. And, and, and that's a not true at all. The, the other one is, is a little worse than that. If, if they don't think of God as emotionless, they think of him as emotionally negative. It's not that he's uh, detached, it's that he's totally emotional, but he's totally mad, <laughs> or disgusted, or perturbed. We think of God as frustrated, when we think of him as angry, we don't see him as mostly pleased. Many times we see him as mostly dissatisfied and frustrated with us. Many times our, our image of God, it comes from the way that we've uh, you know, had uh, fathers or leaders in our lives uh, uh, act towards us. And, and so if we've had a father that it was pr- uh, perturbed with us a lot or frustrated with us a lot, sometimes we, we project that image on God. Or if we have a father that made us perform to get affection or approval, many times we, we project that image on God. But, but God's not like that. 
He, he's, he's not emotionless, and he's not mostly negative in his emotions towards us. In fact, if you become a student, and, and this, is a, this is a massive truth, but it takes a little work because most of us, we have an image of God that's not uh, accurate to who he is, and you've got to become a student of the emotions of God so that you can rewrite the internal script of your heart as to the truth of who God is. And so if you become a student of the emotions of God, all of a sudden, rather than waking up in the morning thinking, how do I please God? How do, I, how do I sort of make it better so God likes me today? All of a sudden you wake up in the morning and that negative sort of uh, vibration, that's, that tremor that's going on on the inside, you can tell that thing to shut up because it's not true about who God is. You become a student of the emotions of God and you find out this, he's actually glad. He actually is joyful. He's actually pleased and he's actually tender. He's affectionate and he smiles and dances and sings. I mean, how often do you picture God smiling and dancing and singing? Zephaniah 3 is real clear. He rejoices over us with singing. Rejoices over us with singing. Rejoicing, it actually means jumping up and down and spinning around wildly. I mean, most of us, we don't picture, you know, we're just there in prayer. We're feeling a little negative. We go, oh God. Most of us in that moment don't picture God jumping up and down, spinning around, going, yeah, you're talking to me. We, we. But it says he delights in the prayer of the righteous. He takes pleasure in the prayer of the righteous. And he rejoices. Rejo- he, he's the rejoicing God. He's the dancing, singing God. He's the delighting God. He's a God that takes pleasure in his people. I love Psalm 149. Look at this. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He takes delight. You can write that next to it. Delights in his people. He'll beautify the humble with salvation. So when I say become a student of the emotions of God, what I mean is you find scriptures like Psalm 149. You write it down. You stare at it. You find scriptures like Zephaniah 3.17. You write it down. You stare at it. You begin to say it. Begin to pray it. And then you, you make it in first person. You say, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. I'm one of his people. The Lord takes pleasure in me. And you meditate on it. And, you, and I tell you what, you've never done that for a long period of time. It will have a question mark on the end of it for quite some time. You'll go, the Lord takes pleasure in me? <laughs> the Lord takes pleasure in me. Do you take pleasure in me? I mean, it, you'll, you'll wrestle. It's not, it's not like you read it once and you go, yeah, I got it. You have to read it, and you have to allow it to rewrite the internal script of your heart. Because that script has been written over a long period of time. And who knows what's caused the, the, the script in your heart to be written. Who knows the challenges and the, the influences and the things that you've been through that have written something negative about God in your heart. It's an attack of the enemy against the knowledge of God. In fact, the scripture tells us that every attack of the enemy, every stronghold is erected against the truth of the knowledge of God. 
And so he's always, the enemy is always trying to hit and break and pervert the knowledge of who we think God is. We have to take scriptures like this and we have to say, okay, the Lord delights. What does the God who delights look like? The Lord takes pleasure. What does the God who takes pleasure look like in his people? It doesn't say the Lord takes pleasure in those that work really, really hard for him. It just says he takes pleasure in his people. That's where I get it. He likes me. He likes me. And I tell you, I've had to wrestle with that for years. I've said those verses before the Lord. I go, okay, tell me again. Batter up. Here I come again, Lord. Tell me again. Tell me that you like me. Tell me that you delight in me. Tell me that you take pleasure in me. And this is where it goes for me. All of a sudden, I realize this. God takes pleasure in me. In other words, pleasure is released in the heart of God by me. Okay, so here's me, little old me, broken down me. And when I turn towards the Lord, the little yes in my heart, that makes me his person, his people. I'm one of his. My little yes And there is pleasure released in the heart of the one who's perfect because of me. Hold on. So that means that I have the ability to make God feel pleasure. I have the ability to turn my head towards him, just set my heart towards him, and pleasure is released in God's heart. Now let me just ask you something. How many times have you prayed and you felt like the ceiling was brass and God wasn't listening and he kind of had a mean look on his face and he's like, not now, little kid, like stay away. I mean, I know I've prayed many times and I felt nothing. I, 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 I didn't have a sense of the, the, you know, the spirit of the Lord on me and it's just like, oh, it's almost like God's saying, hey, not now, I'm busy. But that's not true. He delights in the prayer of the righteous. He takes pleasure in his people. That means this, whether I feel it or not, whether I sense it or not, whether I have a whoosh of the Spirit of the Lord or whether it's you know, dead, stale toast, God is taking pleasure in me. He likes me. He likes me. Whether I've just stumbled out of bed, barely you know, awake, trying to pray, whether I'm feeling everything, whether I'm feeling nothing, whether I'm feeling like the scripture's so revelatory or like it's dead as a doornail, God is taking pleasure in me. Student of the emotions of God. We've got to rewrite the internal language so that we default to understanding who he is in truth rather than defaulting to thinking of him as something that he's not. Come on. We have to rewrite it in here so that we default to the truth of who he is rather than defaulting to some lie that our circumstances or our life has told us about who God is. Beloved, this is so massively important because the world all the time is beating against us and it's trying to tell us lies about God. We've got to study his emotions so we understand who he really is. And all of a sudden, it changes everything when you realize that your little yes, it releases pleasure inside of him. I mean, could it be, now think about it, could it be that heaven, the heart of heaven is moved when you say yes? God's heart is touched and moved with pleasure 
when you say yes. I, I love how he, he said it to the maiden in Song of Songs. He said, turn your eyes from me, for they've overcome me. He goes, you've ravished my heart, ravished my heart, my sister, my bride, with one look of your eye, with one link of your necklace, one glance, he goes, and I'm overwhelmed. I love the little link of the necklace. I never, you know, you kind of read over that and you go, what does that mean? Link of the necklace, one attempt to try to beautify yourself for me. He goes, my heart is ravished. He goes, one little yes. He goes, and my heart is filled with pleasure and overcome by you turning towards me just a little bit. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He's the God of immense emotions. Everything he does, he's full of emotion and he is mostly glad, he is mostly happy, and he's mostly pleased with you. Beloved, he's mostly delighted in you. He's not mostly agitated or perturbed or trying to get you to perform. I tell you, when, when you realize that one little link, one little attempt, it releases pleasure in the heart of God, that changes everything. Because now, no longer am I working to try to get, you know, God's uh, approval of me. No longer am I working to try to qualify for God's pleasure. When I do something now, I'm giving God pleasure. Rather than trying to get him to, to, to like me, all of a sudden, I'm releasing pleasure in his heart. Every time I do the least little thing. And before I do anything. He takes pleasure in his people. That's massive. We have got to become students of the emotions of God. And then secondly, I alluded to it just a moment ago, but we've got to realize there's a story, and then we've got to place ourselves in it. Turn over to John chapter 8. I'm going really simple with this stuff. I'm going as basic as I can because I realize we've got to root these things in ourselves so deeply. We've got to get them so deep into the foundation of who we are. When we get running and gunning and doing, we need to press reset. And so that's why I'm touching the most basic ideas over again. I love John 8. Jesus is in the middle of the uh, celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the feast that speaks the most of the wedding. At first he wasn't going to go to celebrate the feast in Jerusalem, and then he does. He goes up. And John 8 is a story of the woman caught in adultery. Let's just read it through for a moment. Now early in the morning he came again, verse 2, into the temple, and he, all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Early in the morning... Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. They walked on, in on this woman with another man. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. I tell you, when the wicked bring before Jesus those who are in need of mercy and they try to 
catch Jesus by, by uh, perverting the law of God and, and running against mercy, I tell you, God, mercy will triumph over judgment every time. That's the point I'm trying to get. He will, he will move in mercy that will stun and silence all the wicked and all the critics. Verse 6, this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as, as though he did not hear. What an amazing, strange response. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. They continued asking him. What are you going to do about this, Jesus? What, what's, what do you think about this woman? She was caught in adultery. Over and over and over, they're berating him. He's, he raises himself up. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. I, I want to get the transcript of what he wrote on the ground. Just, you know, I'm just interested. Verse 9, Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, I love this story. It's a great story. It's powerful. How merciful is Jesus to... to Extend mercy to the woman caught in adultery. But the the thing about it is, while the story is powerful for instruction, and and we get to see parts of of, of the heart of the Lord in in this story, the thing about it is this, that I'm not a woman that lived in the first century that was caught in adultery. But if I put myself in the story, and rather than looking at the story as a spectator, but I put myself in it. See, I, I, I get something from the story when I, when I spectate the story and I see it from the outside, but if I come to realize this, that the stories of the scriptures, the real life experiences that Jesus had, while they happened with Jesus and real people, they're not just their story, they're my story. And all of a sudden, when I take the story and I, put, I step back for a moment and then I put myself in the story, all of a sudden it has the power to impact my emotions and impact my, my heart in a way that, that I never considered before. And so rather than just reading the scripture as a spectator, all of a sudden I'll consider it and I'll meditate on the verses and then I will make myself a participant. And though I'm not a woman that was caught in adultery in the first century uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles, I have done many things that are just as sinful and horrible as what she did. And I realize this, that I'm just as much a harlot as she is. And if I step into the story and I see myself caught in sin and brought before Jesus and all the accusers of my life and the enemy and the religious spirit and the condemning mind, condemning my life, and I, and I see myself beaten down under the shame of sin and then I'm brought before Jesus in the very state of my sin, All of a sudden I realize he's not joining the crowd to condemn me. He stoops down in the dirt with harlots. So surely he stoops down in the dirt with me. She was caught in adultery during the feast that speaks of the wedding. 
You, I mean, you can't get worse than that. He's giving us that as a, a sign for our story. No matter how wicked my heart has been, no matter how sinful I've been, all the accusations and, and the, the voice of condemnation and the voice of the accuser of the brethren, all those voices, what are you going to do about this one? And I'm thrust in front of Jesus, even in my darkness, and Jesus doesn't condemn. He's the one that stoops down in the dirt and writes on the ground. And he's the one that redeems harlots. See, it's powerful when I look at the story from the outside, but when I step in the story and I realize these stories, these happenings that happened in the scripture, they're my story, and I put myself in it, and all of a sudden I see myself in the dirt. I see myself going through the, the revelation of my sin. And how many times have I lived that out in my own life? And then Jesus, thrust in front of Jesus, and I look at Jesus, and he's not on the team that's condemning me. He's only extending mercy to me. It shifts something. It impacts my emotions. It impacts my soul. It changes my chemistry because now it's not a story about them out there. It's a story about me right here. It's a story that's good for me today. It's a story that's good for me every day. Because the power of shame will separate us from God. But the truth of who he is, he is the one who wants intimacy without shame. He destroys shame. The power of the blood of Jesus has forever delivered me from shame. So that when, I'm, when I see this story, when I'm the one that's in the dirt, when I'm the one that's groveling, all of a sudden I realize he's the one that comes and extends mercy. And I see myself looking into the eyes of, of love and tenderness and kindness. And I see him reaching to me in mercy. When I put myself in that place, it rewrites that script in my heart about who he is. Beloved, this has got to be our continual habit. We've got to study his emotions. And we've got to put ourselves in the story You've got to realize that the kingdom of heaven is about a good king. He's preparing a wedding for his son. It's not a wedding for somebody else out there. It's a wedding for me and for you. Jesus is delighted in you. He's desired you. I love that, that song that Nathaniel sang. He says, my heartbeat, it's a sign for the world to see that you love me. The fact that my heart is beating, it's proof that God loves me. Beloved, this is our story. All the ups and downs, all the trials. It's because God is raising up a comparable bride for his son, and that's you. You're the one he loves. You're the object of his affection. You're the one he delights in. You're the one he takes pleasure in. You move his heart. When you pray, it moves his heart. When you wake up in the morning, heaven rejoices and scurries around and says, there he, she is, the bride of the, the lamb. She's, she's awake today, look. That's you. I'd like to say it a thousand more times so it can, it can take root in the foundation of who we are. Because I don't think we believe it yet. Oh, but we're going to believe it. The spirit and the bride. They're going to say, come. And the, 
the predominant mentality of the church is it will be, before this is all said and done, as if a bride greatly desired and delighted in by her bridegroom. This is who we are. I tell you, I, I, I want to live in this revelation. I love that John 15, 9. The Father has loved me, I have loved you. And then he, and then he it's not just, and, and think about that once. He goes, as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. And I, I go, oh yeah, as the Father loves Jesus, Jesus loves me. Oh, it doesn't get any better than that. And he goes, abide in it. We have to marinate in these thoughts. We've, there's a day we're coming out of shame, I tell you. We can come out of shame. We can live with confidence before God. We can live in light of the pleasure of God for us. We can live in full confidence with hearts, fully in assurance of His pleasure and delight in us. We can live there, beloved. It's for us. It's for us. Even in this age, we can live there because we are on a collision course with that day. We're going to be united with Him. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Jesus. Some of us, we have a hard time locking in on these truths. I tell you, we've got to lock in on them, and then we've got to let them permeate us. We've got to let them break down our, our brittle emotions. Jesus, bridegroom, the one who desires us, I pray, Lord, come. Come. And remove our defenses. Come. Shatter. The stony encasings around our emotions. Come. We want to be students. The truth of the way you think and feel. We want to see ourselves on a journey journey into love and we want to see ourselves in the story the romance of the gospel the romance that started in Genesis it ends in Revelation but it only begins in Revelation encounter us encounter us Lord draw us in again the revelation of your delights that your heart is delighted by me say it again God takes pleasure in his people we ask you Lord say it again to us come Holy Spirit